Checking out the equipment, promising to bring it back. Checking the directions, constant monitoring of the time, wondering how it will all turn out. These are some of the concerns of students when they go to conduct oral histories for the first time. But of course they could do it for 30 years and still worry about the same things. On this episode of Outspoken, we'll hear from the interviewers as well as their narrators. Learn something about what it is like to learn to love this branch of historical research when you're just starting out. Cal State Fullerton students Jessica Buckle and Helen Yoshida were among several students who conducted interviews for the Women, Politics, and Activism Project led by Natalie Fusekas, director of the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. They learned by doing, and then they shared what they learned with others at the Southwestern Oral History Association Conference held right here on campus this year, with the center's associate director, Cora Granada, assisting. The association is a regional branch of the Oral History Association, the premier organization of its kind in the world. I asked Jessica and Helen how they began presenting their work at conferences. We were a part of Professor Fusakis's Intro to Oral History class last semester. Um, and so as part of her Women's in Politics and Activism project, we conducted oral histories. Uh, each of us had a different topic that we looked at. Um, and so when we heard about the conference, we decided to put our collective works together, um, looking at the resilience of women in activism. So like Helen focused on Chicana women, I focused on the progressive movement of women in Orange County. Um, Katie York focused on the LGBT community in Los Angeles, and Sierra Sampson focused on uh, women in environmental protection. Before becoming oral historians, both students developed a love of history, but took different routes to get there. Helen Yoshida. It started, I guess, as me me being a storyteller. I was an English major and uh, undergraduate at UC Irvine. And um, I was just really interested in talking with people first there about literature, but then later on, after I graduated, I got into journalism. And I got really interested in the interview process uh, and talking with people not only about the subject we're talking about, um, but also their lives in general. Um, I later went on to work for the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation, and so I'd interview uh, former Japanese-American incarcerates that were imprisoned at Heart Mountain in Wyoming, and we'd talk about you know their lives in camp, so it'd be a topical interview. But then they'd start when you know they were growing up in San Francisco, <laughs> and uh, they'd tell me like everything about you know their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents, and so it went beyond just talking about camp. Um, and so then I got into like the life interview, and so I was looking at programs, and I found Cal State Fullerton and the Center for Oral and Public History. I was like, wow, like no one has that, has that. <laughs> and when I discovered that they had the Japanese American collection, I was like, well, that's, that's it. I gotta go there. <laughs> like many historians, Helen has a personal connection to the past, a story that influences her work today. So my 
father's parents were incarcerated at Heart Mountain during World War II. My grandmother and her family came from Yakima in Washington, and then my grandfather and his brother and his family came from Los Angeles. And so my grandparents met at Heart Mountain. Uh, my grandmother was taking sewing classes and um, learning English or improving her English. My grandfather was doing the same uh, and also doing also part of the uh, mandolin band. And so I heard that they met at a mandolin band performance when he was there. And so he was also part of the camera club and um, went on to take photographs of camp and then you know, after afterward, they got you know they got married, and uh, he continued that hobby well into retirement. <laughs> but camp was, you know, not only how they met, but but they had a community there because their all their friends uh, were from Heart Mountain, or most of them were from Heart Mountain. So after they were uh, released from camp, they moved to Los Angeles, where again their friends moved to Los Angeles. So they had that community that started in camp. Jessica Buckle had to overcome an unpleasant experience of history in high school. Um, history itself, I've been passionate about for a while. Um, I kind of hated it in high school just because... Everyone we, does. <laughs> all we ever did was memorize names and dates, and I'd forget it as soon as we took the test, just like everybody else. And... It wasn't really until I got to college where I had teachers who were passionate about history and passionate about the stories behind it um, that I really became engaged with it as well. And I wanted to share that enthusiasm and passion um, with high schoolers so that they didn't have the same experience uh, that I did. As far as oral history goes, um, I honestly had no intention of pursuing it. I was fairly ignorant about it and assumed it was only relevant to people that worked in museums and libraries uh, until grad school orientation where Dr. Fasekis was talking about the program. And the entire time I was just in awe of her and I was like, this is amazing. This is super relevant to teaching students and to try to get them engaged, to understand things that are beyond their scope of knowledge. We had, I had taken my students to the Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust. At the very end, they have what they call the Tree of Testimony. And there's just all of these TV screens and on them there's the recordings of testimonies from Holocaust survivors and you know, we talked about the fact that very few of those people are still alive, and once they're gone, you know, that's the end of their story, unless there are other people there to continue that story, to act as as agents, and, and to keep that story alive, and in a sense, to keep them alive. Um, and so it was associating those two things that I was like, wow, I could really use this in the high school classroom to try to make history come alive for students. Becoming excited about oral history was one thing, actually becoming practitioners another. 
For the WPA project, Helen and Jessica interviewed two people each. Helen Yoshida. I interviewed uh, Margaret Garcia, she's a Los Angeles-based artist, and Diane Velarde Hernandez. She's a retired educator um, with LAUSD. I presented on their their experience in the Chicano movement uh, through uh, art, literature, and education. And uh, I went in into their interviews, in particular Margaret's interview, thinking that uh, I thinking that she had gotten into art and was practicing art well into the Chicano movement, but I found that she really got into it afterwards. <laughs> uh, but she, in talking with her, um, I found that she's a, well, she, she creates Chicana art because she's Chicana herself. So. It took me a while to get to the point where I understood the relevance of painting a portrait and that social discourse and interaction that I have with other people. I, I treat people as human beings. I don't deal with cliches and stereotypes and groups of people. And I have some kind of iconic image of what they're supposed to mean. And they've got their fist in the air. And we've got the Virgin of Guadalupe and the farm worker flag and all kind of a cliche. Not that I can't paint those things. Not that I don't respect those things, not that they don't pertain from time to time, but if you can't look at a human being as a person and it's just a social, political issue to you and it's not attached to a human being, I mean, what are we really talking about here? You know? My friends are part of my community. Oh, you can't paint that one because he's not completely Mexican. And you can't paint that one because they're white. You can't, I mean, what is that? I mean, I mean, people are just people. You know, I'm a Chicana. That's why my work is Chicana. For Diane, she always knew she wanted to teach so that desire to teach uh, went into what well, was part of her experience uh, in the Chicano movement because she actually taught a class on uh, Chicano studies Chicano studies in high school because she felt that her teacher didn't have that experience to speak about her culture and her community. Jessica focused on two Orange County women. So I interviewed Karen Reisdorf and Felicity Figueroa. I met them. Um, I was looking online, trying to find different women's groups um, in the area to contact, um, to try to come up with an idea for my paper for oral history. And one of the groups that I came across was Women for Orange County. Um, and they had a their 37th, annual suffrage lunch um, this last August. It is the longest running women's event in Orange County. Um, so Karen invited me to be her guest and so I went and sat with her and talked with her about it. Um, and then while there, they're honoring women who have made significant contributions 
um, to the community. So they had a woman who was talking about her involvement with Planned Parenthood and helping uh, Hispanic women um, get reproductive health care. They talked about um, Friends of Orange County detainees, which are people who go and talk to those who have been incarcerated by ICE um, and give them, you know, friendship and someone to talk to and try to help them while they go through that process. And uh, Felicity was one of the speakers, and she was talking about how you can see through all of these organizations how Orange County has has shifted, and it's the thing that she said that stuck out to me the most was this is no longer our grandmother's Orange County. And so that kind of became the the name of my paper and my focus. And I looked at how, you know, these different women's organizations from the National Organization of Women to Women for Orange County to the Orange County Equality Coalition, um, Orange County Friends of Detainees, how all of that has kind of demonstrated that the, you know, previously conceived notion that Orange County is and always has been and always will be this bastion of conservatism isn't the only narrative that exists. Yes, there are, you know, conservative areas and there are conservative people, but there are also people who are more progressive and who are fighting for change. Right after the election, I think I was one of the people who was sent an invitation to this primary group that was trying to decide if we were going to do um, an Orange County Women's March or if we were going to organize buses to go to L.A. And I was one of the ones that said, you know what, we need to do a march here for two reasons. So that the outside world will see this is not your grandmother's Orange County. And two, so that people who are living in Orange County uh, realize that there is a very vibrant, strong, progressive movement here. Because so many of the people are like those people that I first met when I was going out with my Democratic list. You know, they think Orange County is still full of Republicans and, and little else. I once had a drama teacher tell me that if I wasn't nervous before I went on stage, I didn't care enough. A little nervousness for an interview is a good thing, too. I, I do get nervous because... I'm unsure of, of what the outcome will be, even even if I know them. So Margaret was uh, my mom's roommate, and so I had met her when I was little, and um, we had purchased her artwork before, and so there was that familiarity, that camaraderie. But um, still, I was nervous going in and talking with her, you know, as a oral historian, as a graduate student, as not not just you know a kid anymore. Um, and to ask her about her life and serious questions. And uh, for Diane, I was even more nervous because she, I, I did not know her growing up. I had um, wanted to interview her because I read a book about Consafos, which was a Chicano magazine published by Cal State LA students, and uh, she had her work published in it. And the um, and in, in that anthology about Consafo, she was the only, uh, one of the only women interviewed in it, like the head of chapter. So I was like, wow, she, she must have something to say. <laughs> and so I, uh, uh, 
again, she, well, I, I found her through, again, through my mom, because my mom knew Sergio Hernandez, her husband, and uh, so she, that's how that happened. But, yeah, talking with her again, asking serious questions, and, and, and wondering what her reaction would be <laughs> for someone that I had never met was pretty nerve-wracking. Gonzalo's was actually the first publication that I ever encountered that reflected experiences um, that I had had, that I had lived, and that I had in my community. They were stories uh, with names that I could identify with. There was poetry with emotions that I could identify with. There were photographs um, that I could identify with, and it was awesome because it was the first time I ever saw something that was so similar to my experience and looked like me that was actually in a published format. Jessica gets up in front of kids every day, but she was nervous too. Yeah, I mean, these women, you know, are older. They've seen so much more and experienced so much more and I mean, obviously, everybody's life and everybody's story is different, but to go in, you know, and ask someone to to share their story, you know, is very personal. And, you know, to hope that you come off right, you know, knowing that you are a representation of the program, of the school, and wanting to make sure that you, you know, appear professional and not like a a bumbling, goofy student that they roll their eyes at and are like, oh, great, why did I agree to do this again? You know, so it's it's very nerve-wracking, you know, to be a part of that process, but it's also an extreme honor to to be witness to someone's story and for them to allow you into their homes and to share, you know, personal details about their life and their struggles and the things that they've been through, their hardships and the things that they've overcome. And, you know, it, it creates a bond that you, you know, you have with them and you kind of serve as a protectorate of their story and you are very careful in the ways in which that story is, is shared and displayed. Once the interview begins, one never knows just where it will go, even if you've done your homework and written out your questions. Helen Yoshida learned about the 1968 student walkouts in East Los Angeles to protest unequal learning conditions, a major Mexican-American protest movement. But her narrator's path to activism was not as Helen had assumed. Margaret's experience, both of their experiences in the walkouts, um, stood out to me. Margaret's uh, was interesting because she said that she did not participate in the 1968 uh, East Los Angeles walkouts. And I really wanted to know why that was, uh, because I had thought everyone had walked out. Um, and she explained that she was a senior at Roosevelt High School, and uh, she was also on a grant to be there because she was living um, in Montebello, or excuse me, Monterey Park. And so she, so her getting permission to be there uh, was, uh, she didn't want to jeopardize that. And, and so she chose 
not to do that, but she later on spoke in front of the Board of Education about um, that the walkouts were a good thing and that change should happen and that they should demand better education. Um, Diane's was her her experience in the walkouts also stuck with me. Uh, she was very proud to uh, be a part of that movement because she was proud of the group of people that were saying no and demanding you know, their rights and educational equality, um, just like everybody else. Uh, I think what stuck out the most was her her ability to lead at such a young age. Um, she was 16 when she was teaching that class, uh, the Chicano Studies class, and and it's like, wow, like <laughs> to be a teacher and to know you want to teach at, at that young of an age was uh, pretty remarkable. Jessica Buckle quickly came to admire the women she interviewed about activism in Orange County. Karen was a very surprising because she's very petite and kind of a little softer spoken, but she also had a story that was basically like, I'm not taking any man's nonsense and no one will tell me that I'm not as good as a man. And so she really talked about how, you know, she'd grown up in a one-room schoolhouse in New York in a in a farm area, you know, that had been the same schoolroom her father had gone to and, you know, how she she would, like, taunt the boys with snakes because they taunted the girls and she wasn't going to be left out of that and she wasn't going to let girls be the only ones screaming um, to, you know, wanting to pursue a degree in uh, higher science and you know, once she got there, you know, she got a scholarship and they told her, you know, you should just quit now. Women don't go into the this field. You should just, you know, marry this nice guy over there. And, you know, she eventually did end up giving up and um, quitting her dream of school for a while. But she, you know, ended up going back and had a lot of struggles herself. But you know, she lost her husband at a very young age and then had to become the primary, you know, caregiver for her family, the primary income. Um, you know, so she'd been through a lot, but she wasn't, you know, ever going to let anybody tell her she couldn't do what she wanted to do. The first awareness I had of boy-girl was I was 10 years old and in the spring the um, garter snakes would breed and have their litter underneath in the leaves of the and needles of the hemlock trees in our in our playground and the boys would always knock us out of the way and get out the door first and get to them and then as the girls would come out to recess they'd chase us with the snakes to make the girls cry. Jeez. <laughs> but at the age of 10, I got out there first. And you know what? Those boys cried just like the girls. <laughs> you chased them around with snakes? <laughs> yeah, they were just little, like little worms, and, and the boys were just as, and I thought, there's not a 
male superior to me. No boy is better than I am. So that started me thinking about along those lines. Plus, as I said earlier, um, growing up in the era of Marilyn Monroe, there was nothing extremely um, feminine or coy or trying to attract a boy that was going to exist for me, and I decided I'd be smarter than any of those boys. Um, and Felicity is just, she's a whirlwind. I don't even know how there is enough time in a day for her to accomplish all that she accomplishes. She's part of a million different organizations where she, you know, leads the charge uh, in fighting for equality and, you know, whether it's for, you know, gay marriage or for, you know, transgender people or for immigrants, um, you know, inclusion in schools, having multicultural days where, you know, she she was asked to be uh, part of the NAACP, and she was like, you guys know I'm white, right? <laughs> um, she talked about, you know, going to college on the East Coast where they're a little more liberal, and she went to Mexico for, like, one of her, like, thesis papers, and she followed some guy who believed that, like, the Aztecs were inspired by aliens, and so she was, like, talked about, like, basically sleeping in a cave with this guy and his two followers, and I was just like, is this story really happening right now? This is amazing, because, you know, here's this, you know, very clean woman who lives in Irvine, and it's not exactly the kind of story that you would expect to, to come from her, but... You know, she's just, she's amazing, and her bumper has about 50 million bumper stickers on it, and she said she, you know, instead of wearing her heart on her sleeve, she wears it on her bumper. She says she wants everybody to know where she stands and what she stands for. Um, both of them are just absolutely amazing women. More and more, I was so outraged by Orange County, I didn't want to be mistaken for one of the conservative white and so that's one of the reasons I, you know, you wear your heart on your sleeve and I wear it on my bump, on my fender too, on my bumper. Um, because I do want people to know where I stand. Sometimes when we do oral history interviews, the subjects are not sure they want to participate because they're not convinced they count as part of history, which in many people's mind is still the province of presidents, kings, and generals. The women Helen and Jessica interviewed have helped change that perception through the work they have done over the decades. I think both Margaret and Diane were well aware of, of their role in, in history and in, their, in, in the Chicano movement. I think Diane uh, maybe more, more strongly um, because she... She developed uh, her leadership skills at such a young age. I think she was able to that that came to the surface uh, uh, so much more readily um, than talking with Margaret, uh, who when I talked with her, she more she reflected on it and she she knew she knew that part of her life and her experience was important. But I think I think that wasn't stressed as much as um, 
as what she accomplished later, later on with her artwork. You have to listen to your inner instincts. Don't just be contrived. Trust the better part of yourself to put forth the things that you value most. If you value something, be honest and value it. Don't say, oh, but it's not relevant right now. It's not the, the thing that's hip, that's in, that's mad, you know, that it's not, it's not going to garner the attention of the museum or the critics or, or any of that. It, it may not. You have to first be genuine. You have to be authentic. Um, both Karen and Felicity were very humble and they didn't really think of themselves as, you know, bringers of, of change or, you know, people that deserved acknowledgement. Um, you know, but they both, you know, through discussions with them realized, you know, how important sharing their stories are, you know, and, especially when it comes to the fact that they believe in fighting for change and fighting for equality. And uh, Felicity's mother was an ambassador, uh, I want to say for the prime minister possibly in England, somebody really important. <laughs> um, and she talked about the fact that she really wished she had sat down and talked more with her mom about her experiences in her life before, you know, she became a wife and a mother and, you know, how saddened she is that, you know, those are memories that she doesn't get to have and aren't going to go forward, you know, so she was really appreciative and touched that, you know, somebody was taking the time uh, to record her story. We go into interviews thinking that we're going to be somewhat neutral yet encouraging so that people feel comfortable telling their stories. But often the people doing the interviewing come away from the encounter feeling that they have been affected, that they themselves have actually been changed. With Diane, it made me realize how much she and others, she, Margaret, and, and other uh, Chicanas and Chicanos, what they had to do to um, fight for equal rights and equal education and equal opportunities that I, I had I had known because my mom has told me about it and um, not only through her experience but her uh, 13 brothers and sisters and so we have a big family <laughs> but to hear it from someone else and to hear, not just to hear one part of their lives, but to hear how that affects their, their whole life um, really made me appreciate everyone that came before me and before my generation. I, I was, always have been, and always will be to the day I die a student advocate because students don't have always the opportunity to voice how they feel or or what their thoughts are or what their needs are um, for me they both left me pretty much in awe <laughs> um, with Karen we kind of really related on the fact that 
neither one of us ever wanted to give up on our education, despite, you know, the hardships that we had come, you know, across in our lives. You know, her with being put down and told as a woman she couldn't do it and being, you know, then becoming a wife and a mother and having to kind of put those dreams on hold for a while. You know, but she, you know, would take classes at night and she'd take classes at this school and then a couple at this school and then, you know, finally eventually got her degree through Cal State Fullerton. Um, and so she, you know, never gave up and made me think of my own grandmother who told me that the education is, is the one thing that a man can never take from you. And so, you know, that kind of has always stuck with me through my entire life. And I knew, you know, no matter what I did in my life, no matter, you know, the struggles that I've been through and the hardships growing up. And, you know, it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's degree, but I did it. You know, I didn't give up. And here I am getting my master's degree, which I never, you know, thought was something that was in the cards for me. In sixth grade, girls, I found during the 70s and 80s when I was teaching, that girls would turn away from math. And I pounded it into them. You don't know when you're going to need that. You don't know when you aren't going to have a husband that you are going to be able to have to do that on your own. And I just felt that that was a very important part of my teaching. Yeah. So you really kind of emphasized to them the opposite of what you had been encountering in your childhood, teaching, teaching these girls that just because they were girls didn't mean they couldn't compete, that they couldn't be mathematicians or scientists or whatever they wanted to be. Whatever they wanted to be and not to let any of the boys tell them that they weren't good enough. Um, for Felicity, it really you know, made me appreciate the things that people are out there doing every day you know, that go unnoticed, that aren't you know, the headlines of the newspaper. And you know, really made me think about, am I providing the best equal opportunity education that I can provide for my students and I, am I meeting their needs based on who they are as individuals you know whether they're gay straight transgender Hispanic Asian Caucasian whatever the case may be you know am I meeting their needs and giving them what they need to become productive members of society and it you know also left me thinking about how little I do for others and helping the community, you know, and I mean, right now, unfortunately, all of my time is spent on homework and writing papers when I'm not grading papers, but, you know, hopefully one day I can be, you know, just as, I don't want to say just as productive as Felicity, because I don't think that's really possible for most people. Uh, she's a superhero, but... Uh, you know, I would, I'd like to be, you know, helping inspire change and, you know, leading by example for my students. Jessica and Helen are both at the beginnings of their careers. One is a teacher, the other a writer. I asked them what impact this work might have on the way they think about teaching students and writing for an audience. I think it provides a context 
for them to relate to and to understand. You know, they can sit there and they can read a textbook and they can Google things on the internet, which has pretty much replaced them even looking in a textbook. But they're so far removed from the actuality of of life, you know, the fact that history is being made right now and the history that has been in the past. You know, we talked about World War One, and they they got it, but they didn't really understand what it was like to be in the trenches and to really understand shelling and, you know, trench foot and shell shock and coming home with PTSD, you know. And so I think, you know, no matter what the topic is, by being able to hear these stories, they understand that that was really somebody's life. That was somebody's experience. That it's not just something, you know, that we know happened, that we at a personal level can relate to it. I mean, I remember sitting in, in Fasekis' class and she was showing us, I think it was the El Toro Project, and she was showing us the interviews. And one of the gentlemen was talking about um, voting. They were enlisted and they were supposed to vote and only two people voted. And the guy in charge came out and was really upset and was like, what, you know, why haven't more of you guys voted? This is ridiculous. This is part of democracy. Like, you should be doing your job. Only to realize that they, none of them were old enough to vote. They were all serving their country. They were fighting. They were willing to sacrifice their lives. And none of them could even vote for the president that sent them to war or would bring them back and to share that kind of experience with students I just think is kind of chilling you know and it really brings you know that message to the forefront for them it gives me a sense of um, pacing and timing like how people construct their story their stories their self their reflections about their lives. It also uh, gives me a sense of of dialogue between between the narrator and the interviewer, but also also I guess between themselves if they're really thinking about about something and they start on one trajectory and then they change paths um, and and to not necessarily mimic that, but in in historical fiction make the reader feel like like what they're reading has happened to them or they've have experienced it somehow um, I think all histories are are good for that meanwhile the women politics and activism project continues more than 150 Southern California women have told their stories since 2013 you can sample some of those interviews at the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History website. For students like Jessica, the project shines a light on the way women are significant actors in history. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, as far as, you know, women who don't really see themselves as makers of history, I think that is where probably part of the biggest importance of the project comes in, 
you know, is that these are regular everyday women, moms and daughters and sisters and wives, and they're out there trying to affect change, whether they're conservatives, whether they're liberals, it doesn't matter. They're all unified in the fact that they're women, you know, stepping out into a public sphere, which was, I mean, it still isn't necessarily very encouraged, um, you know, ready to take that, you know, backlash of, you know, for them stepping into into a role that's primarily delegated for men, you know, and, and getting their message out there, you know. And so by recording these stories, we're showing that their stories are important. Whether they believe them or not, they are important and they should be shared and they should be documented so that in a hundred years, you know, God knows what's happening in the world, we can look back at this piece of history and this part in time and really reflect on the lived experiences of these women. And, you know, maybe we are looking at the changes that they made happen. And even though they thought their voices were small, they were still powerful. So Helen and Jessica checked out the equipment, made sure they knew their way, showed up on time, overcame their nervousness, recorded the stories of four remarkable women, and even presented their findings at an academic conference. But the Helen and Jessica who shared their stories with us on this episode are learning how much they have to learn and how discovering and recording the stories of others changes one's own story in surprising ways. That's all for this episode of Outspoken. Thanks to Helen Yoshida and Jessica Buckle for joining us. For archivist Natalie Navarre and our producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothra wishing you well until next time. <laughs>